Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Sarah Baila to tell us all about her book that's just come out from Oxford University Press in 2023, titled Bottled, How Coca-Cola Became African, which is a really interesting book. Um, In some ways, it is a very straightforward history of Coca-Cola's engagement with the African continent, but I think that undersells it because the book talks about social aspects, commercial and business pieces of this, the environmental impact and all sorts of other things that come together to tell us all about this particular company and its interactions um, in various parts, in in various places in Africa, as well as sort of more broadly continentally. So, Sara, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me, Miranda, and for engaging with my work. Well, I'd like us to engage with your work further, um, but before we begin our dive into the book, could you please introduce yourself a little bit to our audience and explain why you decided to write this? Certainly. So I am a a senior lecturer in critical writing and an Africanist historian at the University of Pennsylvania, where I also am the associate director of our Penn Global Documentary Institute. Um, I was born in South Africa. And as a child, we would travel back to the continent. And I've long been intrigued with not just the ubiquity of Coca-Cola and its products, but also um, items made from Coke bottles and from Coke cans and things that I now know are called upcycled items. So for years, I would collect them um, and just sort of have them there. And you know, even when I went to graduate school to get a PhD in history, I kind of, at the back of my head, was joking, you know, I should, I should you know, write a book on this. And then in 2003, I was a grad student, I was living in South Africa, and I was traveling around West Africa with uh, some other graduate students, we were trying to get to Timbuktu in Mali. Uh, I'm trying to do it overland. And we were just encountering just so many problems. We ended up um, spending like hours on the side of the road in the Sahara Desert and eventually being picked up by some sort of well-wishers who said it wasn't safe for us to stay where we were. And they took us to a homestead. And we, you know, in my in my stupid youth, now I look back on this and <laughs> sense a bit of a different story now that I'm a parent looking back. But but in my youth, you know, we, we slept out in the Sahara and it was all very um, peaceful and lovely with these gracious hosts, got up the next morning, hitchhiked, eventually made it to a ferry. Finally, you know, had didn't have our luggage, didn't, you know, we're dirty and grimy, get on this ferry and somebody offers us an ice cold Coca-Cola. And I remember in that moment, having this kind of aha, which is not unique to me. Travelers across the continent have been having it for uh, decades. Uh, Melinda Gates famously spoke about this in her TED Talk, which is, how is this Coke here? You know, uh, and I remember thinking that, how is it bottled? How is it cold? Um, Where did this come from? And really, as an African historian, Africanist historian, like, what does this mean uh, that you can sort of not go anywhere on the continent or or beyond the reach of this product. Um, Again, I came back, I finished my dissertation, I, I, you know, wrote a book, went on with my life. And then in 2014, it was the anniversary of the end of apartheid in South Africa. And my husband sent me a BBC article about how marketers 
in Johannesburg decided to honor the Rainbow Nation, that's the kind of nickname for South Africa, by generating rainbows uh, above a Coca-Cola wrapped building. So these are Coca-Cola marketers celebrating the Rainbow Nation at the 20th anniversary of apartheid by making a rainbow out of recycled water. And he sends me this article and all of a sudden I think, now is the time to write this book. You know, and I, I immediately tried to read everything I could about Coca-Cola. And what I realized in the footnotes uh, and sort of, you know, there was almost nothing written about Africa, but what was there sort of pointed my way to a great story. And uh, since I'm sure you want to get a word in edgewise, I'll just say one more thing, which is a few weeks later, I was um, getting together with my undergraduate advisor and she said, well, you know what? I happened to uh, know someone at Coca-Cola. Used to be a TA of mine who is uh, who works there, and so I was put in touch with the company. And Coca Cola is famously committed to its history. Um, it runs a state of the art uh, business archive, but it is a closed archive. Um, and yet, I sort of worked through this contact. I connected with them, and I was not the first, or I'm sure the last, academic to get in. Um, but it was rare access that I was given. So I ended up uh, spending a tremendous amount of time in the Coca-Cola archives and later doing field work in eight countries on the continent for this book. Wow. So the archival access, the idea, the personal experience really all comes together here. Um, so kind of starting with that uh, revelation you had that uh, you, of course, mentioned others have had as well. Wait, how is this everywhere? Let's start off with some kind of basic foundations, I suppose, to lay the groundwork for what we're talking about. Just how extensive are Coca-Cola's operations in Africa? Yeah, I mean, that's 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 the great first question, right? Um, so I knew going into this roughly that, you know, Coke operates in every country on the African continent. I wasn't sure at the outset how old or how long that history was, and it turns out it's very long. Um, but how extensive it is, by most estimates, that the company has put together over the years and outside observers, Coke is named as, if not the single largest private employer, then one of, um, on the continent. So depending on when we're looking at, you're talking about 60, 70,000 employees. But where this gets even more interesting is the, again, both company studies and outside observers, multiple different you know, business schools and things like that have studied what they call the multiplier effect, which means that for every official uh, job in the Coca-Cola system, you know, sort of from everything from uh, maybe uh, farming to the actual plants to the selling of the product, there can be upwards of 10 other jobs and upwards of 10 other people supported. So when you start, you know, kind of doing the math out, the footprint is enormous. I mean, it's it's just, um, yeah, it's enormous. I mean, you know, Africa is a huge continent uh, of a billion people. So, you know, even if we're talking about a footprint of, of uh, 700,000 people being impacted by this, it, it's still a lot. And there's nothing else uh, it, that I've come across that really rivals this. Hmm. No, that's incredibly important to be aware of as we then go into the rest of the book. Um, and I'd love to kind of do almost what you sort of mentioned just now and kind of go all the way back. Where does this come from? Where does this begin? Because it does start earlier. I'm, I'm kind of glad to hear you say that it started earlier than you thought, because it definitely surprised me reading this part of the book. 
Can you take us through these origins um, that go back even to the name and the content of Coca-Cola? Sure, sure. So so Coca-Cola has a very kind of um, romantic lore about its origins. Uh, and if anyone ever goes to Atlanta, Georgia, where Coke comes from, you can go to the Coke Museum and, and walk your way through. Um, so Coke was invented in 1886. And it was invented by um, a kind of chemist, pharma, pharmaceutical kind of um, in line with the the nostrums of the day, you know, this kind of era of these drinks uh, that were um, playing around with soda in various ways. And the, the man by the name of um, uh, John Stith Pemberton, who invented Coca-Cola, was himself riffing on an earlier drink, which was an Italian creation that combined cocaine and red wine. And so now we're kind of taking ourselves back into a time in history where in, in that case, cocaine was a relatively new discovery and, and was thought to have all sorts of benefits. Um, Pemberton was kind of playing off this idea, but decided that for cost purposes, he would rather, use, and, and also in line with um, the temperance movement in the US, he'd rather use water than wine. That was the first thing. And the other factor, which maybe was surprising to you, was that in the 19th century, word had gotten out in the global north of the cola nut. So again, if anyone of your listeners has traveled through West Africa or has read, uh, for example, Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart, they would have heard of the cola nut, which is not a nut, but it's a, a kind of fruit that people chew for all sorts of reasons. It's thought to have a whole bunch of benefits, but essentially it's highly caffeinated. And Pemberton would have known this. Um, and you know, in the book, I trace sort of how that knowledge got dispersed. Part of it was from enslaved people. Part of it was from slavers, colonizers, military units. Um, but so when Pemberton was sort of like making this brew in a copper cauldron and riffing on Vin Mariani, that Italian drink, and deciding to add water, he had this idea that cola from the cola nut would be a better source of caffeine. Um, in terms of the cocaine, it was decoconized leaves. So this was not, the, I know there's a lot of kind of um, idea, like was there ever really cocaine in, in Coca-Cola? But, but to your question of where the name comes from then, Coca uh, comes from the cocaine leaves and cola spelled with a C comes from the cola nut. Um, and, and there's, you know, historians working on the history of the cola nut who really look to this moment now and say, what a lost opportunity for the continent, because it wasn't long before Pemberton and then those who followed him to realize that the cola nut was not a very practical source of caffeine in terms of the, the, um, the kind of mechanisms in place to get it out of West Africa at the time. Um, but all the way into the middle of the 20th century, the company kept traces of both products in its drink so as not to, to have um, false advertising, like from a legal standpoint. Um, yeah, so that's where the name Coca-Cola comes from. So 1886, it was invented, um, and it really wasn't long before it sort of made its way to the continent. So that's obviously where we have to go next. Um, but in that kind of lovely concluding sentence, you give the implication at least that kind of it wasn't long until it comes to the continent. Like the next sentence of how it does is going to be sort of straightforward, right? And yet it's not. 
why isn't it simple to determine when Coca-Cola came to the African continent? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question. And I think, you know, I think part of it is that, and I'm going to give you the history, the historical answer in a second, but I think part of that is is what I found in 2014, which is while there are many, many books written about Coca-Cola, for the most part, the story of Coke in Africa has has slipped through and slipped by. And, and that is astounding, not just because of what I told you about the ubiquity, but also because uh, throughout the history of the, the company, um, multiple high players, like people who go on to be the CEO of the company, cut their teeth on the continent. So, so there's this surprising sort of blind spot. Okay, but back to your question. So there is Coke lore, again, that says, you know, the, the drink was first bottled in South Africa in the 19, about 1928. And it was bottled in, um, in plants that were previously uh, part of like bottled water operations. So the plants that already existed. Somewhere in the lore, there's often this kind of sentence where they say, well, um, some syrup may have arrived here earlier, you know, and, and and that's all we know. When I was doing my research uh, and looking through old advertisement or across the continent, I found surprising evidence that suggests that Coca-Cola, th- those kind of hidden gallons of of um, of, uh, of uh, concentrate, really, were arrived in Cape Town at something more like 1910. So we're talking very shortly after uh, the creation of the product. By the 1920s, you're seeing ads for soda fountains, uh, American style soda fountains, and that's what they're called in most major cities on the continent. So uh, from Nigeria to Kenya to uh, Sierra Leone uh, to you know what is now the DR Congo, etc. So the what I gather from this is several things. One is that there's this amazing spread of knowledge about. Uh, soda, you know, and, and in part of that is tied into this idea that I, I hinted to in the origin, which is that there were medical benefits to drinking soda. And if you look at early advertisements for Coca-Cola in the United States, it's often, you know, put out to be, you know, healthy and healthful. Um, but but the, uh, the second point, which is one uh, that kind of jars with the Coke narrative, is that really nowhere in the world did this drink just arrive and was immediately welcomed and taken on. I mean, it is, I know Coke people will tell you, you know, this kind of wonderful tasting drink that has this, that they can go into the science of like why your taste buds like it and things like that. But for the most part, um, consumers had to be grown for this. So just the fact that Coke arrived in Cape Town and was in these uh, you know, in this in this cafe was not enough for it to succeed, and that would be end up being a kind of false start for the drink on the continent. Um, so, in the 1920s, it it was for the first time bottled officially on the African continent in South Africa. Hmm. This is something I always find fascinating about history: is the false starts, the things that don't quite work. Um, because they do take us into this realm of it's not just about sort of wanting to do something. In this case, there's a whole kind of logistics side that needs to be sorted out really to make it so uh, prominent. So and I was very pleased then to read in the book that you explain this um, because it is such a key part of it. So can you take us through kind of from that point of it properly being established how then did Coca-Cola expand its operations? What's the sort of 
production franchise model that's being used here? Sure. Yeah. So you're exactly right. You know, nothing is ever preordained. Um, Lots of things have to happen. And in this case, um, in the 20, in 1928, Coca-Cola was bottled um, in, in and around, you know, Johannesburg. And again, in the, in the early years, so that is uh, before the advent of the apartheid state, but South Africa is a country at that point uh, has declared itself um, a country. Um, it's not, it doesn't immediately take off. And, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for this, one of which is that there's a global price for the concentrate. So maybe I should just back up and tell you that from the earliest days of Coca-Cola uh, in the U.S. and everywhere, it's never been exported as a finished product. It's exported as a concentrate. And that's that um, Coke is very famously secretive about its secret formula, this concentrate. And then that concentrate is sent around the world. Uh, today, it's manufactured, the actual concentrate, in about seven locations, two of which are on the African continent. Um, but it's distributed and mixed with local forms of sugar, of water, of carbonation, bottled in uh, local gla- you know, forms of glass or cans. Um, so, so because there was a set price, um, the earliest bottlers in South Africa really struggled to turn a profit and there was much kind of back and forth on, on how they could launch this drink, uh, just getting people to drink a dark brown kind of fizzy liquid was, was itself a challenge in the days when most sodas were bright and colorful. Um, so when I talked to the early guys, and at this time it really was men, um, all men behind it, they explained that what they did to launch this drink was to create a beeline of beverages uh, that they were able to produce at a cheaper price and use that money to, you know, kind of support the business. Now, if any of your listeners are in South Africa or in Kenya, um, they would recognize that some of those drinks uh, still exist and those would be... uh, under the Sparletta name. So green cream soda, which is my personal favorite, it's kind of a neon green and stony ginger beer, which is very, very popular. Um, but, but those were part of this group called Sparletta. It, uh, they ended up becoming very popular so much so that, that, uh, the, the global Coca-Cola powers bought out the copyright uh, or bought out, sorry, the, the rights to them in, in the eighties and, and they're produced as co-products. Um, elsewhere, even beyond South Africa to the day, to this day. So that's sort of the earliest story is this B range that supports it. But the flip side, because we're that's the bottom of the continent, is that very quickly thereafter, on the eve of World War II, we see Coke arrive in Morocco and Egypt um, alongside military bases. And again, this is typical in, in the story of Coca-Cola globally. It is World War II that propels the company um, around the globe. And largely that is done um, deliberately alongside uh, military outposts. I mean, the company goes so far as to, you know, make the claim that soldiers fighting for America, you know, deserve, you know, deserve a taste of home. And that taste of home is, is Coke. And so they get around sugar rationing this way. They get around all sorts of things. Um, And so from the African point of view, you see this kind of start at the bottom of the continent. And then what happens in both Morocco and Egypt is what be- is, is what begins as these like military outposts are converted to civilian operations and start the spread across North Africa um, at, the, at, at the conclusion of the war. 
So I don't know if you want me to keep going about the rest of the continent. <laughs> uh, yeah, let, let's talk sure. about that a little bit before we move on to the next piece of the puzzle. Yeah, and I guess maybe it's a, a moment to just say that, like, you know, I am aware that this is an enormous um, continent and an enormous scope of history, and I, I tackled that by design. Um, but but the downside there is, you know, certain differences and regional differences in histories are, of course, um, you know, I, I have to kind of brush over or synthesize um, in, in, in ways. But hopefully your reader, your listeners will forgive me for that and, and go read the book to see to see the details. But um, OK, so between North Africa and South Africa, there's you know, a lot of a lot of space. And what happens is um, just as everywhere else in the world, uh, franchises are awarded um, often to sort of either fledgling um, families that become quite powerful powerful over time or um, you know entities that are already somehow embedded in power structures who then take over can you know get control for a certain um, often a country or part of a country so for example the Leventis family uh, which is a, a Greek family and a Greek operation um, ends up running um, as it does to this day Coke operations in Nigeria um, and and uh, for a, a large amount of time in Ghana as well. Um, and so you start to see operations like that set up across the continent. The vast majority are local bottlers, um, although over time there come to be some company-owned bottlers as well um, for, for, for different reasons. So if you look at the subtitle of my book, it's you know, how Coca-Cola became African. And the that is the argument I make over and over again, which is that this is not the story of a Western or, or you know, global North company coming in and just like steamrolling a continent and foisting its its product on them, but rather um, this kind of series of adaptations where the company is bent to the will of locals in all sorts of ways. And the very first way is through these local bottling plants. Um, to this day, local bottlers are deeply enmeshed in their communities. Um, sometimes communities, uh, you know, see the product and name it for the bottler, not even as a kind of global product. Um, I think generally there's a sense that this is this American multinational, but that's not really how it's received either historically or again today. So to give you some specifics, you'll see over and over again, I found this in the archives and then later in field work where people would say things like, you know, we, we don't like America, but we love Coke or Oh wow! You Americans have Coke too. So do we in Egypt, <laughs> or so do we in you know wherever else. Um, so there's this real uh, interesting disconnect. It's not even a disconnect. It's in my mind. It's a sense that in many places Coca-Cola is just as a as an entity as a product is considered to be local. And maybe just because I haven't said this this far is, you know, my book is bright red, and I use Coke red as the kind of main uh, product. But when I talk about Coke, I'm talking about the entirety of its operations, which includes, um, very importantly, includes Fanta um, and bottled water. And I, and I say importantly includes Fanta because since you asked me how it spread, um, one of the uh, most interesting interviews I did was with a man named uh, Neville Isdell, who uh, was born in Ireland, moved to Zambia when he was nine years old, grew up there, went to the University of Cape Town, 
um, graduated, didn't have a job. So he went to work for his girlfriend's father, who was a Coke bottler in Zambia. And he started out just driving, you know, driving shop to shop, trying to get people to buy Coke. And what he said to me was, you know, it's really hard to get people to drink warm Coke, but people are more willing to drink warm Fanta. And so it was really Fanta um, and to a certain extent Sprite that pushed the spread of the product in the 50s and 60s um, across the continent. And to this day, if you go to many countries, uh, Rwanda, Kenya, Uganda, you'll find that those uh, Fanta and those fruitier drinks are are perhaps more popular um, than regular Coke. And the addendum to the to Neville Isdell is that he went on to become CEO of the Coca-Cola company. Huh. No, very, very important to add that in. Um, and this idea of kind of naming it, calling it after the bottler, that those institutions being so embedded um, such that it then becomes, well, this is our drink. Um, oh, it's available in other places. That's, you mentioned that you kind of come back to that point over and over. And I'd love to ask you about kind of the other places it comes up, because to be honest, it would be a big thing, even if it was just in this sense, even if it was just about the manufacture and the logistics. But you show in the book that it's not just that level of Coca-Cola's business that's so embedded. There's also the workforce aspect. There's the marketing aspect of this. So can we add those into our understanding of how Coca-Cola in all of its forms becomes so integrated into daily life across the continent? Absolutely. Um, and some of this, I think, is is in some sense the 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 genius of the company, if I'm going to put it that way, which which is this understanding of a need to be embedded and a desire to be embedded. So some of it is the company being deliberate, but I think maybe even more of it is people responding and the genius of ordinary people, um, you know, kind of forcing this upon the company and and. So I'll just sort of put that there. But um, okay, so right, there's a lot of jobs that come from Coca-Cola. That's one thing. Um, When we talk about marketing, um, early days of Coca-Cola, you'd have one kind of ad and that ad would get sent from the New York ad offices all around the world. And you'd see the exact same ad then show up in maybe like Hawaii and Singapore and Cairo and, you know, Atlanta. And it'd be like, kind of weird because it'd be the same uh, model in all those locations. But around, uh, as we move into the 50s and on, you start to see pattern advertisements sent. And so the marketing and ads become localized. And that means having local models, local languages, um, you know, so right away you see this kind of, um, yeah, localization. Um, in terms of workforce, one thing we also see as we move into the era specifically of decolonization, you start to see a much more deliberate move on the part of bottlers and also Coke executives to try to um, you know, replicate the demographics of where they are and pay real attention to how many um, uh, Black Africans are being employed and promoted within within the company and who are, start to really do achieve positions of power um, within there. But Coke's localization happens in all sorts of other ways as well. So one of the stories I tell in the book is around sport. And again, this was a wonderful um, kind of interview and and kind of 
fascinating find on my part, which is um, I interviewed a man by the name of Sam Uvuzana in um, Harare in Zimbabwe. And he had been a, uh, he graduated uh, from his high school. He was a great soccer player. And so the local bottler um, enticed him to come work for them because they wanted him to play on their bottling soccer team. And he was a really bright guy, is a really bright guy and, and rose through the ranks of the company until one day he was sitting at a meeting where people said, you know, hey, how could we, you know, what else could we do to, you know, market or spread spread our product? And he said, what about a youth league? Um, and fast forward to what started out as a Zimbabwean um, only uh, soccer youth league for boys um, and is now the single largest um, U18 soccer league in the world called Copa Coca-Cola, a million uh, actually both men and women participate now um, in this soccer tournament that takes place. And I got to meet some of the, uh, a coach and some players in um, Eswatini or what used to be called Swaziland um, and elsewhere. And this is just this remarkable um, infrastructure and, and, you know, program. And in that case, it's very much branded Coke Red. You know, it's sort of very Coca-Cola. Um, but everyone I would talk to around it, yeah, it was branded Coke. But here was this way to play this game, to travel, to get, you know, boots and balls and things like that. Um, you see a similar story around music. You see a similar story around um, sustainability, which we can talk about later. But in the in the in the early days, really, uh, those early decades of spreading the product, it's, um, yeah, it's marketing, it's ads, it's sport, it's music, and then it's a whole bunch of other things, which I, I guess I just won't keep talking, but I'll, I'll gesture to, which are things like bicycles and sewing machines and other markers of, you know, middle class and, uh, and later upper middle class aspiration that Coca-Cola bottlers are very savvy about integrating into their work. Or we could flip it around and say African consumers are very savvy about pursuing um, because they want those items. Mm, no, absolutely. Um, this, I think, would be my point for mentioning how much more detail is in the book itself. Um, just worth highlighting that. Uh, I think that that piece for me was perhaps the most fascinating, just to read all the different examples of how it was integrated. Um, so thank you for gesturing to them. Uh, and I'm just reminding listeners that they are there. We've been talking sort of so far, kind of sort of Coca-Cola outwards, right? So what's happening with the company? How does that spread? How do local communities respond? Um, I'd like to bring in the kind of traditional high politics side of things, if you don't mind, uh, because if we're talking about these, you know, the 1950s and 1960s, and we'll, we'll get to the later things, I think, in a bit. Um, but of course, there's some pretty big high politics stuff happening in Africa at this time. Um, we've got ways of decolonization. Now, obviously, Zimbabwe is happening at a different time than Ghana, for example. Um, but this is very much something that no one can really avoid, um, especially not big foreign companies. So how did Coca-Cola respond to decolonization in various places in Africa? That's a great question. Um, so, right, no one can avoid it. I, In the book, I chart what are in fact two different paths that Coca-Cola um, 
you know, rides the wave to to a, a decolonized continent, and they are somewhat contradictory. Um, and I should start by saying that the the Coca Cola Company's stated position when it comes to politics is one of not so much even neutrality, but just we're going to work with whomever. <laughs> you know, if it we're not Republican, we're not Democrat, we're we're just going to kind of work wherever we can and with whomever. And we can critique that, I think rightly so, or we can just you know state it as fact. But when it came to decolonization, um, the company made a fairly, a, 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 a clear attempt um, across the continent to put their weight behind emergent um, majority rule, uh, you know, decolonized, Countries. So, for example, you mentioned Ghana, which is the first country to win its independence. Um, Coca-Cola was there, you know, put out a big magazine um, celebrating it, um, was part of Nkrumah's you know, parade and inauguration and things like that. And that's really typical. So we end up seeing that across the continent um, as countries win their independence. Coke is part of it in one way or another. So um, think, you know, parades and floats and beauty pageants and, and spreads that that celebrate this this turn to independence. So that's a kind of um, yeah, let's get our let's get behind the powers that be. But there is a a separate move going on that that jars with this and complicates it. So before we start to think, you know, how high minded the the company really is, um, is that as we see uh, countries and people uh, really fighting for their freedom um, in most of the continents, so I'm going to leave out um, the anomalies like South Africa right now. Um, you see a real change in Coca-Cola advertisements. Um, and I argue this and I, 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 Coca-Cola is often lauded as being, you know, the most amazing marketer in the world, right? So the advertisements are incredibly important. Um, and so what you see is this real shift um, to celebrating not the peoples of Africa, but the animals, the natural. And I you know, I opine, you know, or I put the position out there that this is a direct response to the anxieties that come up around decolonization, in particular in white settler, what were previously white settler colonies, so places like Kenya and later South Africa and Zimbabwe. Um, and when we think about Africa as a place that has been branded, you know, the land of, of, of animals and safaris and things like that, I located in time around this moment and show the ways in which that the Coca-Cola company actually had a hand in this branding in and of itself. Um, there's, a, there's a third thread as well, and that is that in South Africa, which was not um, you know, just as the continent is is becoming, uh, for the most part, um, f- free, you know, South Africa is kind of doubling down. Um, Coca-Cola does align with uh, traditional forms of government, which were largely in cahoot with the apartheid state. So it's complicated um, what the company is doing. I, again, most of it can be understood in this kind of um, you know, very kind of pragmatic sense of like, we'll do business with whomever, wherever. Um, it is, there's a kind of ambiguity to it. 
you know, it's hard to say there are times when the company is definitely on the right side or the wrong side of history, but in the end, it's sort of got an ambiguity to it. And that's why the moments where the company really gets involved in politics, and it's few and far between, but they do stand out um, because they are unique. Hmm. I'd love to pick up on um, at least what to me was one of those moments. um, And you've sort of hinted at it a little bit in that answer, kind of the odd case of South Africa. Um, Because of course, as we're having decolonization, we're also having apartheid um, and responses to apartheid, right? Massive divestment calls that are global and especially prevalent in the global north. How did Coca-Cola kind of manage the, well, we want to work with everyone. We started off in South Africa, but also (laughs) divestment is a real thing that's having a lot of impact. Right. So this is, I think, one of the most interesting um, chapters in in the history of Coca-Cola in 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 Africa, but also in a way in the history of the company, because it is extremely rare, rare for the company to ever uh, get involved in politics. And in the case of apartheid South Africa, it does. Okay, and and this is in fact uh, the kind of thing that egged me on to write this book because I could see it hinted at in the footnotes of other people's writing, but nobody had tackled it straight on. And that is this idea that Coca-Cola had played a role in the end of apartheid that hadn't really been written about or explored before. So so how did that come about and what did that mean? Um, Part of it has to do with the fact that by the time you have talk calls for um, disinvestment and divestment, in apartheid South Africa, which had been around since 1948. Um, the company, as you said, started there on the continent. It was a highly successful and lucrative inter- enterprise for the, all the same reasons um, that made other enterprises lucrative under apartheid in terms of labor laws and things like that, or lack thereof. Um, it, by the time those calls were happening in the United States, there were concurrent, they were like coming on the heels of African-American activism in the United States to rectify racial imbalances in, in the United States in plants. Uh, there were not um, African-American owners, for example, of many bottling plants in uh the late 70s and early 80s. So people like um, Jesse Jackson, who uh, was a, a kind of a- uh, activist for that cause, threatened to boycott Coca-Cola in America. So this is the kind of backstory of what happens. And into that climate, the Coca-Cola company hired a man by the name of Carl Ware, who over the course of his life, life would end up being uh, the highest ranking African-American employee um, uh, executive, sorry, not not just employee, executive within the company. And initially, Mr. Ware was brought in to kind of sort out the threats to the business in the United States from a racial standpoint. And he was able to hold off that boycott through all sorts of um, you know concessions and and promises and pledges of, of funding and things like that. So. You know, then you started, as you, as you pointed to, um, you know, this growing kind of desire um, across like colleges, camp, college campuses and elsewhere for all uh, multinational companies to, to get out of South Africa. And Mr. Ware was tasked with going to South Africa and, you know, figuring out what the company should do. Um, at the time, there were reports coming out of South Africa that the Coca-Cola owned Minute Maid plant, for example, had you know, quote unquote, American plantation style 
um, practices. So very concerning reports coming out within the company. So Mr. Ware went, um, he did a kind of tour of, uh, in fact, like English-speaking countries on the continent before getting to South Africa. And for him, um, his parents had been sharecroppers. Arriving in 1983, South Africa was like going back in time. So even though um, a number of what we call petty apartheid restrictions were um, on their way out at that time, so things like you know separation by benches and and water fountains and things like that, enough were still there, never mind the large-scale apartheid visible through, um, you know, space, uh, you know, in terms of spatially and, uh, and um, uh, you know, living conditions, etc. cetera. Uh, Mr. Ware felt like he was going back in time. And, and as, he, as he got there, he was deemed an honorary white, which is one of the many absurd policies uh, of the apartheid state. And immediately he kind of was moved to, you know, not just figure out you know, what to do from a business standpoint, but as he told it from a from a moral and ethical standpoint. So it's clear in my interviews of him, and, and you can read his autobiography has come out, um, that for him, this was a, a kind of profound moment of getting to play a role in history. And, the you know, to its credit, again, the company, you know, let him and followed, and I think understood the position he came to take, which was that merely getting up and leaving South Africa, like just getting all the operations out of there, would um, would not help the people they were seeking to help. Okay, so there's there's a little kind of business hubris to this, but but this is the position that Co came to, which is we're not just going to leave. Um, rather, we're going to find a way to leave, uh, I'm sorry, to stay while depriving the apartheid government of our revenue, so through a kind of leaving, um, that in the end helps the people we most want to help, which is the majority of South Africans. So how did they do this? Um, they did this by um, all sorts of ways that I document, but one is that Mr. Ware comes and he works his way into meeting all sorts of um, anti-apartheid stalwarts, um, including uh, Desmond Tutu. And initially, Desmond Tutu wants nothing to do with Coca-Cola, um, but eventually Mr. Ware is able to, to win him over, which is the story I tell. And to convince Tutu, um, he, at that point he becomes uh, Archbishop, uh, to head up a foundation that Coca-Cola endows, um, along with a whole bunch of other really high high level anti apartheid guys, um, mostly again men at this time. Uh, at the same time, um, Ware is living in in London at the time, and he meets regularly with Tabo and Becky, who is deputy president later under Nelson Mandela and later the second president of a Free South Africa, and works um, on him from that point of view. He also um, secretly. Uh, comes to fund meetings that take place um, between business and anti-apartheid activists. Many of those, by the way, have been written about. They just have never included Coca-Cola in them. So that, so it's known now that towards the end of the 80s or throughout the 80s, um, businesses in South Africa started to meet uh, with anti-apartheid activists um, uh, to start to consider what a future beyond apartheid would look like. So in these ways and others that I that I do document in the book, Coca-Cola starts to really do a number of things at once. One is convince a certain segment of ANC 
um, African National Congress, the party of Nelson Mandela, a certain segment of that leadership that they are um, they are on their side and that what they have to offer um, is a system of economic liberation. You know, so it's a system that has the potential to offer jobs and on-ramps to economic participation to many people. That's one thing. The other thing they're doing is meeting with um, ANC in exile and then helping to fund these meetings. Um, then on the eve of American uh, sanctions, um, 1986, Coca-Cola does technically move its operations out of South Africa. Okay, it follows the letter of the law of what's of what's uh, been implemented, but it does so in such a way that you never could. Here's a double negative, but you never could not buy a Coke product in the country. So what that means is, when Pepsi got out of South Africa, there were no Pepsi products. When Coke got out, they a new company was formed. Um, all tax revenue from what had been the concentrate plant in the company in the country was moved to Eswatini, um, but products still remained in South Africa, and this created uh, problems uh, after the end of apartheid. Well, so we we have to get into those now. <laughs> you, you've told us half the story. So, what happens after apartheid? Well, this to me is one of was one of the again one of the hooks and one of the most interesting things to me is that right uh, sort of after Nelson Mandela is ele- uh, free, uh, he comes out of jail in 1990 and shortly thereafter uh, comes to the United States and as he travels through to Atlanta Georgia all the major news outlets pick up on the story that he refuses to uh, drink any Coke products, uh, to have anything to do with Coca-Cola personnel, just this total snub of the company. And why was that? Well, there was this um, strong movement at the time led by Albert Latuli's daughter. So Albert Latuli had been president of the African National Congress, the same political party. He was a Nobel Prize recipient, um, and his daughter was living in exile um, in, in, Atlanta, in Georgia and running a campaign to boycott Coke with under the headline of Coke Sweetens Apartheid. Um, Tandi Abashi is her name. And so there was this sense that, yes, Coke products are still in South, they were still in apartheid South Africa. So Mandela comes, he wants nothing to do with Coke. And then you kind of flip forward a few, uh, you know, a few years later, notice that Mandela comes back right uh, before being elected president in, in uh, 93. And there he is on a Coca-Cola jet. Like what happened? What happened in those few years to compel that change? Um and again, that's a story I, I, I do tell. And part of it is that I've already gestured to um, is a, I think it helps us understand why and how the African National Congress that had very strong um, communist principles uh, changed gears upon coming becoming empowered. And that's something historians are busy talking about today. How did this happen? Um, was this a matter of, of being captured or being corrupted? Or was it expediency? And, and I think that the story that, we, that, that the, the narrative that Koch sold um, to, to, uh, to the apartheid, you know, incumbent government um, is also, there's a degree, there's truth to it. And that is that, what happens in 
in that time that I was just talking about where Coke technically disinvests, it divests, it gets out of South Africa. But what happens ironically at that exact same time is that the bottlers go into all of these densely populated corners of the of the country, the places like uh, mostly townships, and open scores of uh, spaza shops and, and little shops like that. And so many, many, many people get jobs during this time and they start to make money. And this is maybe the other component that I have not spoken about thus far. And that is that how Coke becomes local in South Africa and elsewhere on the continent is that people make money selling it and they make money selling it enough so that they can then sell other things or they can do other things like wash cars and cut hair. And time and again, the story I found again across the continent was that this enabled a younger generation to go to school and later university, et cetera. So this, this model of on-ramp to a kind of economic participation and different future is real. Of course, it has downsides to it, which we can talk about in a second. But, but there's this there's this change that is very visible through that anecdote of Mandela I told you, um, and it has to do with uh, with economic participation. Hmm. That's something I'd love to um, sort of keep going with uh, and move beyond just uh, the early 90s and South Africa, because it is, as you said, across the continent. So if we move into the 21st century, what then have been some of the key guiding principles for the company in Africa? It's a great question. So, you know, I didn't know... um, I didn't know any of this when I started doing my research. And, um, and and when I say this, what I didn't realize is that in the 21st century, the key guiding principles um, beyond the, you know, continually grow the business from a financial point of view have been sustainability. And that has meant, and that does mean a variety of things to the Coke company. It means sustainability. Normally they're talking about water, they're talking about energy, they're talking about waste, and often about women, um, youth as well. Um, there's other sustainability projects, but those are kind of the big um, umbrellas of them. And early on in my field work, so I, I ended up going and looking at a lot of this work, and I can tell you about some of it in a second. But early on, I, I, I kept wondering, like, why is the company doing that? You know, why, why, you know, work on these things that seem like they should fall under the purview of governments um, or, or, you know, NGOs primarily. And the answer is simple. And that is to protect a license to operate. It is essential that this company or any company does this kind of work. Um, In some ways, I think the Coke story in Africa then really benefits from Uh, some of the mishaps and missteps that the company took elsewhere in the world that have been very well documented around things like using more than their fair share of water, um, you know, however you want to define that, or producing, you know, excessive amounts of waste for the planet to to bear. So so the sustainability work, um, all of it is conceived under a a similar kind of model, which is the company calls the golden triangle. And in that model, Coke brings itself as what it calls a convening partner. So it's, it sort of has the weight and the power to bring other people to the table. And who are those other people? It tends to be uh, governments, 
and then NGOs. And often those NGOs are a combination of a large multinational, like a global NGO, and then a hyper-local implementing partner NGO. Um, and, And the expertise that Koch brings generally is the expertise that is that I talk about in my book. It's the expertise of like, how can you get a Coke everywhere on the African continent? So how you do that is you're an expert in moving stuff around on, you know, on difficult terrain. You're using, um, you know, trucks, but then also bicycles, tricycles, mules, dow ships, things like that. It's the expertise of moving, um, you know, so when we talk about the spread of Coke, we're talking about the spread of electricity, and we're talking about the spread of clean water technology. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at Coke water projects. Um, those are predominantly not branded Coke. So unlike the soccer tournaments or or, or uh, Coke Studio, which is a music show, uh, water projects are very different. Why? Because they cut to the core of a, a kind of human dignity. Um Water is access to clean water is a human right, but in many places on the continent, um, governments either um, cannot um, or will not, or just are unable to to you know provide adequate access um, to their to populations for a variety of reasons. So when we look at Coke Water work, um, and and actually all of their work generally, there's kind of two tiers. One is the stuff that happens in the plants itself, and in the Coke business. Um, so, you know, one of the most interesting, I think, or, or, yeah, I think interesting for me is the idea that the company will tell you time and again, is that there's um, like literally thousands of ways to clean water, but that you have to use technology that's able to last and be sustainable on the ground in different circumstances. So in Coke plants, for example, excess runoff water is run through, in many of them, I went to one in Ghana, it runs through a kind of what's called activated sludge and then into fish ponds and then the fish swim in the ponds. And so it's a very quick kind of metric for if the fish are swimming, the water is safe enough to be put back into the atmosphere. So there's, there's sort of the strain that happens in the plant and then there's the strain that happens elsewhere. Um, and I know, you know, I could talk about this for, for way longer than you want to hear, but but I'll just say, the water operations, I, I went to a number of them, and some of them are um, just extending municipal access to places that didn't have it before. So I met communities that had waited 25 years to have piped water near them. Um, some of it is cleaning water that is profoundly unclean and unsafe just environmentally. So for example, um, in uh, Naivasha, which is the flower growing region in, in the Rift Valley in Kenya, the water is hyperfluorinated and that creates all sorts of health pro- problems. Um, and some of it is, is unclean and then, you know, in a totally different way with, um, you know, dissolved solids and all sorts of other problems. So, so why is Coke doing this? Again, it's an embeddedness. It's a localness. It is helping people. Um, it is, of course, helping secure the license to operate as well. Um, I saw similar projects around women's empowerment, um, waste and recycling and energy. So I do document a lot of these in the book, but I could keep talking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I'd love to ask you about um, to kind of continue on this point is, um, of course, not just the balance between, well, a bunch of these things seem to help. There is also the element that of self-interest there. Um, 
But there's also the fact that the company itself is a source of ecological stress, of biological stress. So can we add that piece into this evaluation? Absolutely. So yeah, okay. There are two um, two separate things to say here. One is when it comes to the self-interest part, um, in 2016, I was invited to go to Rwanda to watch the launch of Koch's Eco Center, which is something I document in the book. And those are these little modular shops, essentially, that sell, they sell Coke and they sell a whole bunch of other stuff. They're very much branded Coke. They also do that kind of golden triangle work I was talking about where they provide, um, along with partners, internet access, electricity, clean water, um, things like that. When I was with the people behind this project, I had this kind of aha moment, which is that the people who work in sustainability within the Coca-Cola company, and I mean that from the highest tiers down, do not strike me as people who are necessarily interested in selling more and more of the product. In fact, they felt a whole lot more like a kind of missionary um or or some really people out to do good in the world. And and even to the point where some said to me, you know, if Coke stopped doing this project, I would, I would go somewhere else to do it. It's that important. It's making that much difference. And I said, well, where would you go? Like, who else does this? And there we hit the sticking point of who else has the footprint, the will, the desire to do this kind of level of work at this high level. The, we, the Coke... Uh, water operations that I told you about, while nowhere near enough of what is needed on the continent, still remain the single largest um, project trying to address the water crisis in Africa. And part of that is the self-interest, right? Like, so we, I think we need to be very clear about that, that I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. Okay, there's that. But as you said, Coke is not just some neutral player here, but actually a company producing carbonated sugary water um, that nobody needs to live, um, but that is bringing with it, in many cases, you know, kind of life-saving other, you know, things like water um, and electricity, and that's by design. But it itself puts both ecological stress and biological stress. And that is the fundamental uh, question at the heart of my book is how do we reconcile them? Um, How do we reconcile the fact that there's really only so much, for example, sugar that people can or should drink? Um, And I trace that in the book. I mean, that wasn't always thought to be the case, right? Sugar was not always named as the kind of sin product um, or, or, or health crisis that it is in many places of the world. Um, that has to do with levels of consumption and in the UK or in the US, um, those levels are high enough that it's a problem. Same with South Africa, the rise of non-communicable diseases, the rise of diabetes, the rise of dental caries that are tied um, clearly um, to liquid sugar in particular are troubling. Okay, so that's one kind of stress, the stress on the body. Um, what What I show in the book is that Coca-Cola, um, you know, initially pushed back against this, but eventually came to, to, to get it, you know, and to get ahead of it. And so what does that mean to get, or to try to get ahead of it? I don't think we're quite there yet, but that means doing things like shrinking packages, you know, making sodas smaller. So you're drinking less. That means pushing low sugar and no sugar drinks 
including bottled water, including juices, um, although those are sugary themselves, it's not added sugar in the same way. Um, the that's the the oh I'm sorry, and the third way is actually like reducing the amount of sugar in drinks people already drink, like without even telling people. Um, but you know, there's all sorts of funny, not really funny, but but strange things that come up around this. So for example, South Africa uh, at the corporate Coke office showed me a study they did where they went and interviewed people about sugar intake. And people said, why would we buy a diet soda when, why would we pay the same amount of money when we want those calories? You know, we want, why would we do that? Um, so you really, it's shifting minds as well. Um, the, the second kind of stress, as you pointed to, is has been the bane of Coca-Cola's existence since it was born, which is the packaging, right? It's the glass, it's the cans, it's the plastic, right? That, that people, it's very visible. Um, and, you know, most of the African continent is returnable glass bottles um, to this day, which raises a whole other series of questions of whether those are environmentally better than plastic. I mean, they're they're heavier, so they take more fuel to drive around. They must be washed, so they use water and soap. Um, but in general, glass is like, in theory, at least, endlessly recyclable, whereas plastic is not. That said, um, you know, there is at least one plastic to plastic uh, recycling um, on the continent, and that as almost everywhere else in the world is driven by Coca-Cola. So here in the United States where I am, we feel really good because we put our stuff in recycling bins, but the vast majority of it ends up in landfill. And that's very well documented. And there's all sorts of reasons that have to do with the price of oil and uh, the fact that uh, places like China used to take the world's trash and repurpose it and won't anymore. Um, The UK levels are not much better. South Africa, on the other hand, as in the early days of having um, recycling, and it's it's rudimentary, and it's driven by not just Coca Cola, but Coke running a consortium of other PET plastic users to um, essentially, if you get up early enough, you will see mostly guys in reflective vests going curb to curb, picking the plastic and the glass out of people's homes, pulling it off of landfills and taking it to be recycled. Now, it's clearly neither hygienic nor um, the kind of work that anyone would would uh, would want or would see as, as just or noble. But what you find is the end result is that the levels of recycling are significantly higher than what's occurring in most of the global north. So it's not a solution, um, but it's one way the company's trying to offset that problem. Um, But you're right. I mean, what you have brought up, and I I hope readers, um, if they look at this, notice that, um, you know, if they read the book, that this is the fundamental question, and it's not one that I necessarily am able to answer definitively, which is how do we weigh the costs and the benefits of a company like this on a continent like Africa. Well, we certainly can't do any weighing up um, if we didn't have a book that laid it out for us. So thank you for taking us through that very complicated equation and evaluation. Um, But as much as you've sort of taken us very much up to the present and into the future, uh, we're not done yet. I do have one final question for you, if you'll allow. Uh, The book is obviously out and done and available. 
is there anything you might have your eye on to work on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's about Coca-Cola that you'd like to preview? <laughs> um, well, no, sure. I'd love to. Um, you know, you spend um, so much time doing something like this. You, you, you can't sort of stop doing it. And I always like to joke that if you travel around the African continent, it's like the world's easiest scavenger hunt is looking for Coke. <laughs> so you know, Coke signs, Coke products, Coke, Coke things. So um, my new project is not, well, I'll say this. I, in the back of my head, have always wanted um, a coffee table type book documenting the remarkable Coca-Cola signage across the continent um, that I've seen. Um, and my new project is is not related to this, although I'll tell you a funny story in closing. Um, and that is looking at various communities of African Jews across the company. Uh, con- continent. So um, from the Beit Israel in Ethiopia, where I was uh, last year, to the Lemba in South Africa, to the Abba Yudaya in Uganda, and more and more and more. And so my funny-ish um, closing story for you is on my last day in Uganda in July, we went to meet uh, a Jewish community on the outskirts of Kampala. And as we pulled up, that little synagogue was located on top of a Coca-Cola depot. And I just thought, well, worlds are colliding. (laughs) Old project, new project, all in one place. (laughs) And I still to this day call it the Coke synagogue, yes. Um, So that's the new project. But I'm hoping because I can't stop looking at the Coke stuff. um, I keep taking the pictures, keep looking, um, because it's just such a fascinating story. No, it very much is. Thank you very much for sharing a sort of highlights tour of it. And of course, the book in all of its detail is available under the title Bottled, How Coca-Cola Became African, published by Oxford University Press. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Miranda. I really appreciate it.